A six-year-old boy in Pasadena, California prepares for a ceremony. With extraordinary focus, this young boy is meticulous far beyond his years. Everything has its place. It all has meaning. This boy born Marvel Whitesides Parsons, called John by his co-workers and Jack by his cultist friends, is about to summon a demon. This story is one we might call Freaky Deaky. tackle our resources differently on this episode. Our source material included the book Sex and Rockets by John Carter, The Red Goddess by Peter Gray, Wikipedia for some basic info in the timeline, and a special thanks to Georgina Rose. You can find her on YouTube and all the social media as Dot Darling, spelled D-A-A-T, or Georgina Rose. In the aerospace world, there is a joke that JPL, the initials for Jet Propulsion Laboratory, the initials for jet propulsion, jet. The initials for jet propulsion laboratory actually stand for Jack Parsons Laboratory, or even Jack Parsons Live. Today we're going to talk about Jack Parsons, a man ahead of his time, a man demonized during his life. Some consider him evil, while many of us look to his teachings with renewed interest as we try to discover a new age of freedoms. As one of Jet Propulsion Laboratory's founding fathers, he was also a practicing ceremonial magician who attempted to summon an ancient spirit and incarnate it into human form by impregnating a woman during one of his rites. The rite failed, or did it, and just a few years later, the same Parsons would sign an oath stating that he was the Antichrist. This man was at the same time the author of several once-classified government documents on explosions and patent means of rocket propulsion and the Aerojet Corporation, which he personally founded, now produces solid fuel rocket boosters for the space shuttle based on his innovations. The remarkable Parsons died at the age of 37 in a mysterious explosion that even today is not definitively explained. Was it murder or simply an accident? In later years, this boy who was not afraid to commune with the spirits and demons would change the world. As an adult, Jack would help take us to the moon he would make it possible for a missile to deliver death via warhead. A worldwide apocalypse has been at our door since. He would help introduce a new generation to Babylon, the Scarlet Woman. Most know the Scarlet Woman is a classic film trope, the woman in red. She's always dangerous. Is this a coincidence? But far before this, we find her in the vast historical past, a goddess that got a rocket scientist, an early supporter of women's rights, a cultist and thelemite to reach past mankind's previous limits and take us to space. If we follow him to the abyss, we would be told that our journey is personal and the abyss is ours alone as an individual to cross. Jack was the type of man that drew both women and men to him. He would become confident and driven, able to focus outside of what might be normal limits of the mind. A diverse thinker, he traveled from the divine to the mythical, practicing at the foot of the great beast, Aleister Crowley. Whether you are familiar with the name or just the persona put forward in the media of his time, 
a media that was often recognized for its yellow journalism, a sensational time known for its embellishment of the stories and outright lies as newspaper publishers competed for readership in ways that wouldn't be seen again until the age of social media. But for now, let us get back to the subject of this episode. Jack Parsons, the rocket scientist that was an occultist, also a potent believer in freedom. Sadly, he knew that to most of us that yell freedom the loudest would be most afraid of the responsibility that comes with freedom. Some fringe Americans would try to claim the mantle of libertarianism as an extension of Parsons' writing called Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword. Others would recognize that the discipline needed to actually achieve the freedom might come from the practicing of Thelema. Thelemites would see the deeper meaning of Parsons' search for freedom. In order to understand Thelema in a way that might take down its sinister veil, many fundamentalists of the right like to use use to bring the fearful to a flock that truly fears f- freedom. <laughs> it's a tough sentence, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's... <laughs> You did it, though. (laughs) You did it. Marvel Whiteside Parsons was born at Good Samaritan Hospital in Los Angeles, California, on October 2nd, 1914. On the same day Jack was born, founder of the Jehovah Witness, Taze Russell, had said the apocalypse would begin. Also, in 1914, Aleister Crowley staged something he called the Rites of Eleusis over several nights in London. On the final night, the audience received the Elixir of the Gods, a wine containing a high dosage of the psychedelic mescaline, announcing to those in attendance flying high and hallucinating the dawning of a new aeon-based rabbi, Law of Thelema, do what thou wilt. If you haven't listened to our interview with Georgina Rose about Thelema, now might be a good time to hit pause and listen to Georgina explain Thelema and Jack Parsons from the view of a Thelemite. We'll wait. All right, glad you're back. If you left us, let us have some fun. Maybe we should jump back to him being six years old and summoning a demon. Scott, Heather, do you know of any six-year-olds doing this? Was it just me? If you are confused, refer back to an earlier episode, the one where the demon comes out of my floor. I don't recall summoning this thing, but there it was. Yeah, and it's not just a previous episode. I talk about it in like at least eight of the episodes. That's what made me think about it. I think I was listening to one of our other episodes. Yeah. And I was like, I should throw this in right now. It's a common thing. theme for me whenever you say something isn't real. I'm like, mm, but what about that demon? Yeah. Before we get to the man and his reality, let us get a little darker first. In John Carter's Sex and Rockets, The Occult World of Jack Parsons, the author writes, quote, In the Book of Antichrist, written by him just prior to analysis by a master of the temple, John Parsons alleges to have invoked Satan at age 13, cowering in fear when he appeared. This event would have occurred in late 1927 or sometime in 1928. The reason for the invocation is not given, but it may have had to do with his problems with other children. It seems that in moments of distress, not a few children have turned to magic, witchcraft, or called upon the devil. In his own book, The Antichrist, Nietzsche writes, The hatred of intellect, of pride, courage, freedom of intellect, is Christian. The hatred of the senses, of the delights of the senses, of all delight, is Christian. The concepts of the, or of, quote, the other world, the last judgment, the immorality of the soul, soul itself, they are torture instruments, they are systems of cruelty by which priests became masters. Now, before we we move on. Yes. That is not an attack. On Christianity. Oh, I understand what he's saying. Yeah, it's it's just a 
a way of looking at the control that was, in my opinion, the control mm-hmm. that that uh, the priest had it yeah. in the past. And even if you want to attack Christianity, man, go for it. <laughs> like I, I attack your beliefs We're nonstop. Well, yeah, it, like I think with this subject, yeah, it's really easy to view it as anti-religion yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. and it's not at all oh i 100 percent. like i told michael i was like i don't want any of our religious neighbors knowing because i feel like the ones that i'm seeing are religious in our neighborhood are closed-minded like that yeah so. well a lot of people are and those are the ones so. that my kids play with like a ton like I, that's the pokemon one you know and stuff mm-hmm. and so to michael i'm like i don't want to talk about it when they're around or like even with the kids like having them like a freaky deaky water bottle stickers like mass like today she's like it's well my mom's gonna go recording tonight and i'm like Just be like, I'm a studio bass player. The world's a changing. Maybe. You want to open mic night? No. <laughs> yeah. Maybe podcasters will be accepted in to society soon. Let's see. Real society. Not my breath. Weird society. Mm-hmm. Getting back close to the beginning, we find that Jack's mother, Ruth Virginia Whiteside Parsons, found that her husband, Marvel Sr., was having an affair. Ooh, dirty boy. Yep. She did something that was uncommon for the time. She divorced her husband. Oh, girl. Applause break. No. (laughs) (laughs) Jack's father leaves the story as a person, but the failure of his father to be a father helped Jack see a world where the patriarchy wasn't some shining white knight to save all the world's downtrodden. According to Jack, Ruth and perhaps her parents cultivated a hatred in her son for the way or for the father he never knew. In his essay analysis by a master of the temple, he wrote in third person, Your father separated from your mother in order that you might grow up with a hatred of authority and a spirit of revolution necessary to my work. The Oedipus complex was needed to formulate the love of witchcraft which would lead you into magic, with influence of your grandfather active to prevent too complete an identification with your mother. The self-awareness in Parsons is front and center here. Journey into Space The eighth grade gave John a lifelong friend in Edward Foreman. They came together after an incident of bullying that saw Foreman step in for Jack. The two boys shared many interests. In 1928, they started experimenting with solid fuel rockets. Parsons' backyard at the time was said to have been filled with many holes and burn spots. Parsons and Foreman corresponded with famed rocket scientist Robert Goddard and some of the Germans and Russians working in the field of rocketry. One of the Germans was a science writer named Willie Lay. Willie Lay where? No. (laughs) Who (laughs) named Willie Lay, who later fled the Nazis to America. Lay was a member of the German Rocket Society in Berlin, along with a later Project Paperclip member and an early visitor to the pod, true fact, named Werner von Braun. The boys shared an interest in rockets that was more than theoretical. They loved to blow off fireworks in Parsons' backyard, and in 1920, God, I just keep thinking, where the fuck is this guy's mom? Right? <laughs> like, are you if if there was even an inkling of suspicion that I was blowing up rockets in the backyard? No, I wouldn't be alive today. You know how I I tend to have a funny fact or mm-hmm. connection to a lot of our stories. Yeah, I'm gonna throw one in now with an apology to my dad. Dad, with an apology to my dad ahead of time. Go for it. Because when I was a teenager, my dad had a bought a bunch of gunpowder because he used to reload his shotgun shells. Hmm. And me, my two friends, Tommy and Brian, both brothers, were, we hung out all the time, got into the gunpowder and started making homemade rockets. And wow. with duct tape and gunpowder mainly. Just and, duct tape. Yeah. 
and it they worked. One time we we went we were in my front yard and we were lighting one off. And this is in Palmdale, California. It fell over after we lit the fuse mm. and it took off, shot across the street, hit the neighbor's front door, turned around, came right back at us to where we were laying on the asphalt trying to get out from underneath it because it flew right back at our heads. Wow. So. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> a twenty. We had a 25 pound keg of gunpowder that was full by the time I was done with high school. Yeah. It had like a tenth of it in there. Wow. You're going to be grounded when your dad hears yeah. this. Yeah. For the record. Go to your room, sir. All right. No, that's hilarious. Such a bad kid. No. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and just in case people fell apart when I fell apart myself. Um, read that last bit. The boys shared an interest in rockets that was more than theoretical. They loved to blow off fireworks in Parsons' backyard, and in 1928, they began to experiment with small, solid-fuel rockets. People who knew Parsons at the time said he, his yard was full of holes and burn spots from the constant activity. Wasn't that already in there? It was. I thought I was like, damn, how far back did I go? <laughs> all right. No, it's all good. Interestingly, Foreman later stated that he and Parsons often used glue as a binder to hold together the various gunpowder mixtures they prepared for their little rockets. A fact that will be important later on. I also used to launch model rockets too. That see, that seems more like a thing that people did though. Not so much. Uh, what can we make rockets out of? How about this duct tape? It worked. Duct it, tape apparently is amazing. It did, yeah, we, we made amazing things. We also made a tennis ball cannon. I don't know if you know what that is. Uh, I know potato guns. I've I've made potato guns. I'm not going to go too into detail on how this tennis ball cannon worked because I don't think we should get. It's sued. illegal. Yeah. But it would basically, it's not really illegal, but I could see where there would be shrapnel involved because mm. we used aluminum cans from my dad's beer mm. and tennis balls. And we'd shoot these tennis balls up into the sky. But we were holding the tennis ball cannon. So if something mm. stopped up and it blew up the wrong way. Yeah. You guys put on your bad idea jeans that morning, didn't you? This was like over a few summers. Interesting. I'm sure I'll tell you other stories from Tommy and Brian. back. Oh, then. I'm sure you will. Yeah. In the year after his grandfather's death, Parsons and his boyhood friend, Ed Foreman, devised a successful experiment that shows their interest in rockets was more than an amateur concern. They heated black powder, which involved no little danger, and cast it into a wax matrix. Aluminum, presumably aluminum oxide powder, was also added as an oxidizer. During the heat of the combustion, the mixture would release oxygen, which further fueled the burn. Parsons and Foreman remembered these early experiments later when they began to work on rockets as a profession. That same year, 1932, Parsons took a job with the Hercules Powder Company of Pasadena, where Ed Foreman may have worked as well, as certainly he did later on. In 1933, Parsons graduated from the university school, which some have confused with University High School in West Los Angeles. The university school John Parsons attended was a small private establishment located at 985 East California Street in Pasadena. Attendance at such a private school is another indication of the Whiteside Parsons family wealth. Parsons and Foreman attended Pasadena Junior College together, and though it remains unclear what subjects they studied, both spent two years at the expensive private college, USC, which is the University of Southern California. But neither man graduated. In the spring of 1935, John married Helen Northrup in the Church of Little Flowers. The couple met at a church dance. Helen was the daughter of Burton A. and Olga Northrup and worked as a secretary at her father's business. 
Northrop business adjustments. Jack and Helen bought themselves a home at 168 South Terrace Drive, Pasadena. During the 1930s and 40s, Jack enjoyed the company of many sci-fi writers. His friend, the famed writer Robert Heinlein, wrote a novel named Waldo, in which all the arts of magic have not only won scientific acceptance, but have become technologies used daily by everybody. During his lifetime, Christian piety and capitalist predation kept many humans from having the humanity and the human rights that his friends would give sophisticated robots. From John Carter's Sex and Rockets, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory began in the 1920s and was known as Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory, California Institute of Technology, or GALSIT. GALSIT started as an aerodynamics research laboratory funded by a member of the famous Guggenheim family and administered by Caltech. In 1926, GALSIT came under the direction of the well-known Hungarian professor Theodor von Karman. Although the older man did not actualize his father fixation, when Parsons was with von Karman, he knew he was in the presence of a great man. In turn, von Karman called Parsons a delightful screwball who loved to recite pagan poetry to the sky while stamping his feet, a reference to Aleister Crowley's Hymn to Pan, which Parsons loved to recite before a launch. So I I got you. Uh, But basically his prayer is, it's the Hymn to Pan, it's a invocation, and Pan represents this very sort of carnal, masculine, raw, feral, unchecked, like like pure, raw, like wooden, like like deep in the woods kind of unrefined masculinity. Okay. And so he did this prayer, and I actually was kind of confused at first why these aligned because Pan is such an earth-associated deity. Mm-hmm. It comes from the Greco-Roman stuff, but. Uh, and then he used it to wrap, like shoot up into space. But then I had, I thought about it and this whole like, like limitless masculinity, this super strong, forceful, willful masculine energy does align with the idea of breaking what possibilities we have and breaking kind of our societal understanding and returning to that kind of openness and feralness. So what he was doing is he believed that this pan invocation would allow him to sort of break those boundaries and connect to this like aggressive masculine energy and be able to fully like push off into space. That makes Interesting. sense. Interesting. Yeah. So that was from your interview with Georgina. Yes. Georgina Rose. Right. Dot darling. Dot darling. D A A T. Yes. D A A apostrophe T. Yeah. And, and so w- where are people going to be able to find that in its entirety? They'll find it as one of the, the episodes of our podcast, kind of mm-hmm. a bonus episode. Mm-hmm. We will also put together the entire interview on our YouTube channel yeah. to listen to as well. So if anyone's confused as to why two episodes dropped today, part one is obviously this. And then the second, the attachment to this is you can listen to an interview that Christian did with Georgina. We talk about Jack Parsons and Thelema. She, yeah. she is a Thelemite. So I felt she would be, she would give us a good perspective from a Thelemite's point yeah. of view, because if you watch stuff on, whether you watch TV or, or read stuff about Jack Parsons, yeah, a lot of it shows him or talks about him being this evil thing. Mm. And I think there's a little bit of a misunderstanding and uh, the way he was playing some people back then. So, so you're getting a, a second perspective on what is the popular story, pretty much. You're like, well, it's, you know. Yeah, well, we're adding just a different way of looking at it. Yeah. And everybody can make their own decisions. Georgina was a great person to interview. She, she speaks about 
Thelamy with a lot of passion and knowledge. So, yeah. and she did a great interview. And you said Thelamy? Thelamy. Okay. I was, I was going to say that. And that's why I was like, and that is talk about <laughs> at you. Cause I'm like, I don't know what the, what that phrase would be. I was going to say Thelamy. I was like, I don't, that sounds, that sounds weird. That sounds off. A lot of these phrases I had to learn from looking at Georgina's material. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah. So if you're interested in that, um, make sure you pop over and check that out. They both released today. They're both available right now. So you can hear that interview in its entirety right where you are. But hit the back button, click on the next episode, bada boom, you're there. Between the years of 1934 to 38, we find that Parsons and Ed Foreman are working to gain access to Galsit's state-of-the-art resources of Caltech's rocketry research. In the beginning, their resources were limited, but they had the interests of Theodore von Karman, who was doctoral advisor to PhD student Frank Molina. Sharing socialist values, they operated on an egalitarian basis. Molina taught the others about scientific procedure and they taught him about practical elements of rocketry. They often socialized smoking marijuana and drinking while Melina and Parsons set about writing a semi-autobiographical science fiction screenplay. They planned to pitch to Hollywood with strong anti-capitalist and pacifist themes. This type of thinking would later bring the attention of anti-communists operating in the U.S. government. In April 1937, Caltech's mathematician Zian Zuzin joined the group. He is noteworthy here because of his future in China's rocketry that might have never happened if it wasn't for the Red Scare era thinking on communists. He was recruited for, from MIT by von Karman. During World War II, he was involved in the Manhattan Project, which ultimately led to the successful development of the first atomic bomb in America. During the second Red Scare in the 1950s, the U.S. federal government accused him of communist sympathies in 1950, despite protests by his colleagues, he was stripped of his security clearance. He decided to return to China, but he was detained at Terminal Island near Los Angeles. After spending five years under house arrest, he was released in 1955 in exchange for the repatriation of American pilots who, let, who had been captured during the Korean War. He left the United States in September 1955 on the American President Line's passenger liner SS President Cleveland arriving in China via Hong Kong. Upon his return, he helped lead the Chinese nuclear weapons program. This effort ultimately led to China's first successful atomic bomb test and hydrogen bomb test, making China the fifth nuclear weapons state and achieving the fastest fission diffusion development in history. Additionally, Xi'an's work led to the development of the Dongfeng ballistic missile and the Chinese space program. For his contributions, he became known as the father of Chinese rocketry, nicknamed the King of Rocketry. He was recognized as one of the founding fathers of two bombs, one satellite. Two Which bombs. I don't remember what two bombs, one satellite <laughs> is, but... Sounds like a cool band. <laughs> but it's interesting, or it's crazy, that the communist scare led to Ch China getting nuclear weapons and a rocketry program. Yeah, that for, is pretty interesting. With a guy that could have just stayed in the United States... Yeah. And had a great career here and never helped China. Yeah. But we got so afraid of certain people that they sent them away. And here we are now. What could have been. Yeah. In January 1939, John and Francis Baxter, a brother and sister who had befriended Jack and Helen Parsons, took Jack to the Church of Thelema on Winona Boulevard, Hollywood, where he witnessed the performance of the Gnostic Mass. Celebrants of the church had included Hollywood actor John Carradine and gay rights activist 
Harry, hey. No. <laughs> That's probably how he said it, though, right? That'd be fun. Harry, hey. Yeah. And gay rights activist, Harry, hey. Parsons was intrigued, having already heard of Thelema's founder and outer head of the Ordo Templi, Orientis, OTO, Alistair Crowley. After reading a copy of Crowley's text, Conks on Pox. <laughs> was this like pre Dr. Seuss? Like socks on Mary, like- <laughs> Oh, is it uh, socks and yeah. box and socks? Yeah, I was for sure thinking that was a typo that it was the word Knox, but <laughs> no. conks, conks on um, packs. Yeah, unless I no, that's <laughs> the way it's set. That's how, hey, that's how it's spelled. I'll do my best. Conks on um, packs. Parsons was introduced to leading members Regina Call, Jane Wolfe, and Wilfred Talbot Smith at the mass. Feeling both repulsion and attraction for Smith, Parsons continued to sporadically attend the church's events for a year. He continued to read Crowley's works, which increasingly interested him and encouraged Helen to read them. Parsons came to believe in the reality of thalamic magic as a force that could be explained through quantum physics. He tried to interest his friends and acquaintances in Thelema, taking science fiction writers Jack Williamson and Cleve Cartmill to a performance of the Gnostic Mass. Although they were unimpressed, Parsons was more successful with Grady Lewis McMurtry, a young Caltech student he had befriended, as well as McMurtry's fiance Claire Palmer, and Helen's sister, Sarah Betty Northrup. At Von Karman's suggestion, Frank Molina approached the National Academy of Sciences to request funding in what they were now calling jet propulsion to avoid the stigma of rocketry. The military were interested in jet-assisted takeoff to get to get their airplane airborne from smaller runways. They received $10,000 from the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, the AIAA. Much of the money was used to repair buildings damaged by the group's campus experiments and explosions, which obviously would happen. Yes. Yeah. Especially after you start with a blowing holes in your backyard. Yeah, that's got to be a hefty bill patch up all those holes. On August 12, 1941, they were able to achieve the first rocket-assisted takeoff. Through many failed tests, Parsons eventually figured out he could use liquid asphalt as a binding agent in his chemical mix for rockets that included potassium perchlorate (laughs) as an oxidizer. He came across the idea of the liquid asphalt watching local roofers work with the material. Molina also said that Greek fire was an inspiration for Jack. This might also be inspired by Parsons and Foreman using glue earlier while launching rockets in the backyard. After separating from JPL and Aerojet, Parsons and Foreman founded the Ad Astra Engineering Company, under which Parsons founded the Chemical Manufacturing Vulcan Powder Company. Ad Astra would come under government investigation for espionage when security agents for the Manhattan Project found that Duo had procured a chemical used in a top-secret project for a material known only as X-Metal. Later, this material would be called uranium. They were acquitted of any wrongdoing. Parsons continued to hold OTO meetings at the Parsonage and began renting rooms at the house to non-Thelemites, including journalist Neeson Himmel, Manhattan Project physicist Robert Corndog. (laughs) I saw that going. I was like, I have to call him Corndog. There's no way. All you need is a D. His name, okay, Manhattan Project physicist Robert Corndog. And science fiction artist Lewis Goldstone. Have we mentioned the par- parsonage yet? No, I was like, is that what he calls his house? It's yeah, <laughs> yeah, he had like a, a little mansion in Pasadena. Welcome to the parsonage. Yeah, no. and that's what he called it. That's hilarious. Parsonage resident Alva Rogers recalled in a 1962 article for an occultist fanzine, "Quote: 
In ads placed in the local paper, Jack specified that only bohemians, artists, musicians, atheists, anarchists, or any other exotic types need to apply for rooms. Any mundane soul would be unceremoniously rejected. Sounds like a godless heathen to me. Maybe. Science fiction writer and U.S. Navy officer L. Ron Hubbard soon moved into the Parsonage. He and Parsons became close friends. Parsons wrote to Crowley that although Hubbard had no formal training in magic, he has an extraordinary amount of experience and understanding in the field. From some of his experiences, I deduce he is in direct touch with some higher intelligence, possibly his guardian angel. He is the most thelemic person I have ever met and is in complete accord with our own principles. <laughs> so there, there, when it comes to L. Ron Hubbard, Jack is not a very good judge of character. Mm, but just with him, yeah. It seems to be just with him because... Everyone else was Everybody perfect. else didn't really do what Mr. Hubbard does to Parsons. Hmm. Helen spent an extended time away out of state. During this time, Jack started a relationship with Helen's younger sister, who was 17 at the time. Oops. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> he is such a great judge of character. You're right, yeah. Christian. Oh, the wife's gone. Might as well go for the sister. Next best thing. Well, I was going to say... Get the younger L model. Yeah. L. Ron Hubbard and Sarah he had issues with. So they're kind of connected, as you shall see. I shall indeed. Upon Helen's return, Sarah informed her that Jack preferred her sexually. Such conduct was expressly permitted by the OTO, which followed Crowley's disdain of marriage as a detestable institution and accepted as commonplace the swapping of wives and partners between OTO members. Helen soon found comfort in the arms of Wilford Talbot Smith, who she would later marry. Jack did not find a problem with this and remained friends with the couple. Parsons and Sarah were in an open relationship encouraged by a the OTO's polyandrous sexual ethics. She soon fell for Hubbard. Jack tried to suppress his passions, but became intensely jealous. Parsons wanted a partner and decided to work on this through his occult practices. Fellow OTO members became concerned with this as they felt that Jack was invoking troublesome spirits into the parsonage. Jack himself would report paranormal events in the house resulting from these rituals. These included poltergeist activities, sightings of orbs, and ghostly apparitions and disembodied voices. A Parsonage resident suggested Parsons was susceptible to these interpretations and attributed the voices to a prank by Hubbard and Sarah, those upstanding people. One ritual allegedly brought screaming banshees to the windows of the Parsonage, an incident that disturbs Foreman for the rest of his life. And a foreshadowing to a future episode, Banshees. Nice. Everybody loves banshees. I sure do. Loss has often been linked to personal growth. In the loss of Sarah, we see Parsons reaching a new understanding of the world around him, and more importantly, the world within himself. In December 1945, Jack began a series of rituals based on Scott's favorite Enochian magic. Mm. Describing this magical operation as Babylon working, he hoped to bring about the incarnation of Thelemite goddess Babylon he hoped to bring about the incarnation of Thelemite goddess Babylon under Earth. He allowed Hubbard to take part as his scribe, believing that he was particularly sensitive to detecting magical phenomena. Who is this goddess Babylon? Yeah, so Babylon does have ties to the Christian, the Christian whore of Babylon. There is a connection there. Uh, Babylon and Thelema is a, a goddess. 
she is she pulls from the Christian Babylon and Nana Ishtar and a couple of other deities from that from the kind of Sumerian Semitic Babylonian region uh, and takes it in a different direction. She represents this this untamed female sexuality, this loudness, this this confidence, this lib she's a liberatory force, right? She represents liberation and mm-hmm. sort of this 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 divine feminine that doesn't bow to a man and is vocal, loud, and is like like very open in a lot of ways and connects to these this the Sephirot of Bina. She's especially in Parson's writings, because Parson makes her basically the print Parsons takes Babylon and Pan and makes them like the principal deities of his interpretation of Thelema. Mm-hmm. Sort of like how Gardner would with Wicca about 20 years later, but he sees Babylon as a force of complete liberation, a reaper of revolution and change, and sort of this this kind of powerful, liberating, revolutionary female force. Uh, he wrote a lot about sort of, in, in the writings we have, which we don't have a ton because Cameron did destroy a few mm-hmm. uh, for, for a variety of reasons, but she's she's he sees her as like the way to bring on an age of complete freedom where we're liberated from our previous limits and are able to fully be ourselves he sees her as the gateway to that and is she sees her as extremely essential in this transition and as a way to kind of unchain women he wrote about how he thought the early rise of feminism was representing an increase of babylon's energy in the world which i think is a very very interesting take so yeah he always had Babylon, also known as the Scarlet Woman, Great Mother, or Mother of Abominations, is a goddess found in the occult system Thelema, which was established in 1904 with the writing of the Book of the Law by Aleister Crowley. In her most abstract form, Babylon represents female sexual impulse and the liberated woman. This probably explains why many view her as evil. Along with her status as an archetype or goddess, Crowley believed that Babylon had an earthly aspect or avatar. From the book Red Goddess by Peter Gray, any description of Babylon must begin with the book of Revelations, where the sheer terror of change comes in woman form to St. John the Divine, adrift on Patmos, sitting amongst the scarlet-cloaked fly algoric and bound in a rosary of repression. His personal history is less than edifying with what sounds like an arson attack on a temple of Artemis, the drowning of a local magician, and sundry other atrocities, but Revelations is the real poison chalice. This is the core text. It makes for an inspired, bitter, and prophetic 22-chapter roller coaster ride through war in heaven and earth. At times, it's polemic against the pagan gods of the day, already well on the way to being cast as demons in the new Christian history. More from Re- the Red Goddess. This is also a book that has divided Christians. In the 4th century, John of Chrysanthemum, argued that it should not be included in the canon of the New Testament. It was too dangerous, too open to abuse, too open to abuse and misinterpretation. Revelations continues to perplex and alarm, seized upon by evangelical eagles hungering for end times, the rapture, and the whiff of brimstone to inflame their congregations. It is easy to see why so many today use this part of the Bible to fill their pockets, fear cells. Again, from the Red Goddess, there's just one small problem. Revelation explicitly states 
that the end times were happening right then in the ancient Roman Empire. On the very first page and third paragraph, John writes that the time is at hand. This is not a document about barcodes, United Nations, or credit cards. It comes out of a very real sense that the end is, or rather was meant to be, pitching up at any moment. I know, there's so many different things that, that connect. If it was based on that, that time period, the fact that you can connect it to so many things just in modern time. Like in, in, you know, recent history, even five, 10 years ago, you can open up the book of revelations and be like, Hmm, this sounds an awful lot like this event that happened. It sounds an awful lot like this event that happened. So you can see why it's, even if it was based on that time period, you can see why it's easily misidentified as something that's coming in the future because you can connect. Like if you have eyes and you pay attention to what's going on in the world, you can be like, Hmm, that fits. Which is what you, I think you can do with any good story. Mm -hmm. But I, but I think the hero's journey is a perfect example of yeah. that because we use it in so many movies like Star Wars and Harry Potter. Yeah, and no one and, ever draws connections to And it. even the story <laughs> the story of Jesus is yeah. the hero's journey. Yeah, the OG. Yeah, we've been down this road before. I was about to have this exact <laughs> yeah, tangent, this. like word for word. Yeah. So Deja vu. So are you feeling any different about the Babylon no, because again, that's something that can be taken in different perspectives. Like, so from, from Thelemy, is that it? Yeah. So from that perspective, it could be one way, but then if you look at the other people, they're like, well, in our religion, it says this and this and this. So they're evil in the same way that people that practice or like Thelemites probably think that Christianity or Christians in general are weirdos or. I actually didn't get that feeling from and that's, the research. Yeah, exactly. If any, anyone that's religious in general should be loving to everyone, regardless of what you believe. That's what the majority of these religions talk about, right? Right. So anyone that takes it and is like, I need to hate these people. They're stupid. Yeah. They're stupid. And in any religion, there's always going to be somebody that uses that power. Mm -hmm. Maybe somebody like an L. Ron Hubbard to do nefarious things. Yeah. You know, there's always, and even now we see televangelists basically taking people's money. Yeah. And that's the thing. And buying private jets. Yeah. As, As a Christian man, I can clearly say that there's a shit ton of horrible Christians out there. Yeah. And who am I to judge? I'm not any better than anyone. Well, it's just a waste of time for the most part. Yeah. Love everyone. The end. Yeah. Don't be an asshole. Yeah, pretty much. That's that's what sums up to believe whatever you want. Back to the ritual. Their final ritual took place in the Mojave Desert in late February 1946, during which Parsons abruptly decided that his undertaking was complete. On returning to the parsonage, he discovered that Marjorie... Cameron, an unemployed illustrator and former Navy WAVE, women accepted for volunteer emergency service, had come to visit. Marjorie is worthy of her own episode as she was an amazing woman who served during World War II and later built a a successful artistic career that included art exhibitions and film. And Cameron Parsons believed her to be the elemental woman and manifestation of Babylon that he had invoked in the desert. In early March, she began performing sex magic rituals with Cameron, who acted as his scarlet woman, while Hubbard continued to participate as a scribe. That feels like an awkward experience to sit through. Yeah, it does. Right? <laughs> it's like the guy holding the camera in the corner. Yeah. Don't mind me, guys. He was just taking carry notes. Carry on, carry on. <laughs> he was taking notes. That's even weirder to me. Yeah. <laughs> just to do with a journal. Oh, this mm, is what I do. Gotcha. <laughs> Unlike the rest of the household, Cameron knew nothing at first of Jack's magical intentions, saying, I didn't know that they invoked me. I didn't know anything, but the whole house knew it. Everyone was watching to see what was going on. Despite 
this ignorance and her skepticism about Parsons' magic, Cameron reported her sighting of a UFO to Parsons, who secretly recorded the sighting as a materialization of Babylon. Scott, this has everything in there for you. I know. It's, it's spirits, a yeah. banshees, UFOs. Uh, a mod of cocktail of the freaky. Yeah. Parsons and Hubbard aimed to magically fertilize a magical child through immaculate conception, which when born to a woman somewhere on Earth nine months following the workings completion would become the Thelemic Messiah embodying Babylon. What do you think about that? Well, Interesting. Where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Right. If you want to kind of go, okay, maybe if his, his immaculate conception ritual mm. actually worked, should go look at some of the people born around this time period. Like Hil- Hillary Clinton the following year? Bill Clinton, the actual year. And th- those are two, like, lo- that's low-hanging fruit. <laughs> it is. It's, the, it's my favorite. Why but you could probably find somebody that was, like, either this per- uh, an extraordinary person mm. that was born then or somebody that went on to, like, destroy, destroy the countries. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, so it's just one of those fun games that can lead into a mm. lot of different yeah, things. We should just pull up some records for that year and be like, who was born? Yep. Send us your thoughts if you pull up those records yeah do it for us yes who is the uh you know philemic messiah baby it's right now grown yeah but did it work i believe it did do you believe in magic i do yeah wholeheartedly do with my entire magic? heart i believe in magic i i struggle to believe in immaculate conception yeah even from a well, I, well, I, can't, magician. <laughs> I can't struggle to believe with that otherwise <laughs> i'm not really a believer so yeah no i, I wholeheartedly believe that so I just, and even if it did happen in that, in say the case of Jesus, I don't think anybody can just run around and make babies out of thin air. Pop no, because then babies. why would anyone else pay for things like IVF and yeah. well, all maybe, the struggles yeah, of fertility yeah. if we could all just conjure up a baby? Like you probably can. Nobody looks into these things. Oh, look, I was researching something. All right, the other Scott. Day. So you guys want a baby? So I'm gonna try <laughs> I'm and do that because no, I don't want no more babies. Like we can do a black magic baby. Yeah, and it can be my it black can, magic. Grandchild. No, it can be your your child because it will not be. <laughs> okay, <laughs> put my foot down on that real quick. But no, like I, I was researching something the other day, and I came across like the grimoire. Is that what it is? Like the spell I've book? Heard, I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah, like just online, like, and it had a bunch of spells, and I was like, well, I'm a little curious, and so I clicked on one, and the first thing was like the first ingredient you need is a sacrificial animal. And I was like, well, I guess that counts me out. I'm gonna go get like a rodent. No, even that, I'm like, that's what they, (laughs) Santeria uses chickens. Yeah. No, and actually I'm researching another episode about like celebrities that do like ritual magic and stuff. And who is it? Uh, Some popular singer was like posting on Instagram. She was cleaning up her murder chicken closet after three years of doing rituals in there. And she's just doing a video. like disgusting. Who was it? It was some, it was a popular singer too. I don't remember. It'll be in an episode in the future. Poor chickens. Yeah. So. It's an ancient tradition that. Even Christianity brought in at some point. Yeah. No, I, I, I be, but see, that's the thing is I believe that if you do those things then you can actually like tap into the world of magic because people are doing it and they're having great success with it. If you look at just their lives. I heard a, an interesting uh, or a, a fun little quote. I can't remember who did it, but they said ritual magic is basically weaponized psychology, hmm. which I thought was brilliant. Yeah, of course you probably would say, think that I would take it that way. I would have never thought that. You saying that sentence, I would be like, this isn't something Christian's going to believe. He believes in magic. But if 
magic has a lot to do with exploring your inner workings. Yeah. It would be weaponized psychology. Mm. And it doesn't matter whether the, whether the rituals work as long as they work on you. Because mm. that changes the person you are. Could make you more confident. Yeah. You know, so there. I think there, I don't believe in the immaculate baby. Mm. Do I believe that uh, Parsons through his Babylon working might have brought um, Marjorie Cameron into his life? His own Scarlet Woman, maybe. Mm. That part I can maybe believe because I, I sometimes believe that what you think and project is what you bring into your world. So that is a form of magic. Mm, yeah. Form of magic with a K. And, that, and that's what I think we, that needs to be a distinction is like magic. The normal spelling is what you see at a magic show. Yeah. Pull a rabbit out of a hat. Yeah. yeah. Magic with a K at the end of it is more of the rituals. The dark arts. <laughs> okay, no, or, or maybe it's not the dark arts. Maybe it's just the, the arts. Because some of this stuff's older than the, Christianity. The darkness? No, the, the rituals. Oh, it doesn't have to be Christianity to be dark, man. Like, I mean, but it's old. There's some of these magic rituals are pre-Christian. Yeah, but they or, can still be dark, regardless yeah. of being like evil's evil, man. I don't care what religion you are. But is but are we deal? Well, we'll deal with that later. Yeah, let's let's it, move we'll, on. We'll put a little post-it in that. Yeah. All right. Uh, we are moving on to Elron Hubbard swindles Jack. What a jerk! Yeah, who would have thought Elron yeah. Hubbard was not a great dude? No. Yeah. So Parsons co-founded a company called Allied Enterprises with Hubbard and Sarah. He invested his life savings of $29,970. Hubbard suggested, <clears throat> give that another go. Hubbard suggested that they use the money to travel to Miami and purchase three yachts, sail them through the Panama Canal and sell them for a profit on the West Coast. Soon Parsons found that Hubbard and Sarah had taken $10,000 and left for Miami. Classic. Mm-hmm. Jack, at first, was placated by a call from Hubbard, but changed his mind after Crowley said he was, quote, weak, fool, and a victim to Hubbard in Sarah's confidence trick. He flew to Miami and got a court injunction and a restraining order on them. They tried to escape in one of the yachts but were forced back due to weather. Jack was convinced that he had brought them to shore after performing a banishing ritual of the pentagram containing an astrological, geomantic invocation of Bartzabel, a vengeful spirit of Mars. Allied Enterprises was dissolved in a court settlement that ordered Hubbard to reimburse Parsons. Jack was discouraged from taking further action when Sarah threatened to report him for statutory rape since their relationship took place before California's age of consent of 18. Real classy. Yeah, way to go, Sarah. Sarah is like one of the villains of the story, obviously. Yeah. Along with L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah. Look, I don't drop the B word too often, but she's a real bad person i know (laughs) sleep with your sister's husband and then sit there and be like you know what actually it wasn't consensual i'm gonna say that it was rape real classy sarah yeah to to help my agenda furthering herself yeah yeah Yeah. so we can steal your money classic hubbard already married went on to bigamously marry sarah and went on to found Dianetics and Scientology. The Sunday Times published an article on Hubbard's involvement with the OTO and Parsons' occult activities in December 1969. The Church of Scientology released an unsubstantiated press statement which said that Hubbard had been sent as an undercover agent by the U.S. Navy to intercept and destroy Parsons' quote, black magic cult, and save Sarah from its influence. Hilarious. Wow. Who would have thought that Hubbard would lie about some bullshit like that? Yeah. And it, and let's just say if he was telling the truth and the Navy had sent him in there to break that up, wouldn't that later show that maybe 
L. Ron Hubbard used the military to form Scientology if he had those kind of connections. Yeah. And so, I mean, I'm going to stick with L. Ron Hubbard was lying to try to cover yeah. his butt so he could continue with Scientology. Yeah. The douchebag theory is a suspiciously strong one. Yes, for sure. A magical life near its end. Cameron and Parsons moved into a house in Manhattan Beach. They married on October 19, 1946, four days after Jack's divorce from Helen was finalized, with, with Foreman as their witness. In May 1947, he gave a speech at the Pacific Rocket Society in which he predicted that rockets would take us to the moon. Cameron and Parsons would agree to a trial separation after which she moved to Mexico to join an artist commune. With the start of the Cold War, Red Scare developed in the U.S. Many of Parsons' former colleagues lost their security clearance and jobs as a result. Eventually, the FBI stripped Parsons of his security clearance because of his involvement in the advocacy of, quote, sexual perversion, unquote, in the OTO. Declassified FBI documents later revealed the FBI's primary concern was Parsons' former connections to Marxists at Caltech and his membership in the subversive ACLU. During this time, Parsons wrote his essay, Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword, in which he condemned the authoritarianism, censorship, corruption, anti-sexualism, and racism he saw as prevalent in American society. Parsons testified to a closed federal court that the moral philosophy of Delima was both anti-fascist and anti-communist, emphasizing his belief in individualism. This helped him get his security clearance restored. He soon got a job from Hughes Aircraft Company. Sorry, Scott, for all the editing. Uh, I might make you edit this one. <laughs> bon Carmen soon put Jack in touch with Herbert T. Rosenfeld, president of the Southern California chapter of American Technion Society, a Zionist group dedicated to supporting the newly created state of Israel. Rosenfeld offered Jack a job with the Israeli Rocky... Ro Da, da, da. With the Israeli rocket program. <laughs> in November 1950, Parsons decided to migrate to Israel in part to, due to the Red Scare. When asked to type up a report of tech, technical documents, his secretary reported him to the FBI for espionage. The Bureau was worried Jack was spying for Israel. He was immediately fired from Hughes. Parsons said he was not spying and made a mistake in judgment when, he, when interrogated. His colleagues came to his eight again, but the case worsened when the FBI investigated Rosenfeld for being linked to Soviet agents and more accounts of his occult and sexually permissive activities at the Parsonage came to light. The U.S. attorney decided that since the reports did not constitute state secret, he was not guilty of espionage. Because of his historical Marxist affiliations and investigations by the FBI, the review board decided to permanently reinstate their ban on his working on classified projects, basically ending his career in rocketry. Parsons and Cameron reunited and resumed their relationship. They moved into a former coach house on Orange Grove Avenue in Pasadena. Parsons converted its large first floor laundry room into a home laboratory to work as chemical and pyrotechnic projects, homebrew absinthe, absinthe and stockpile his material. Nothing like some good old homebrew absinthe going on. I imagine. Yeah. Wait, I do some. Uh... We'll, we'll test it out. <laughs> In honor of this episode, we'll make some homemade absinthe. And this will probably be the last episode. So. Yeah. Is that even legal? <laughs> we'll lose our minds. Yeah. A good old batch of garage absinthe going on over yeah. here. <laughs> this is probably where we should point out that focusing on this new home gives you a bit of Jack's explosive end. A kind of foreshadowing. So put a pin in it. 
But before that, know that Parsons was a busy man. He still partied till dawn, often having, often having the cops called on him. He's still large. He hung out with Bohemians and beatniks. He also founded a new Thelemite group known as the Witchcraft, whose beliefs revolved around simplify, a simplified version of Kali's Thelema and Parsons' own Babylon prophecies. He offered a course for a $10 fee, which included a new Thelemic belief system called the Gnosis, a version of Christian Gnosticism with Sophia as its godhead and the Christian god as its demiurge. He collaborated with Cameron on Songs for the Witch Woman, a collection of poems which she illustrated that was published in 2014. We'll post a painting by Cameron's called Dark Angel, which depicts Parsons as the angel of death. In 1952, Cameron's and Parsons decided to travel to Mexico. It would be both a vacation and allow for Parsons to take a job opportunity establishing an explosives factory for the Mexican government. They thought this would help them actually migrate to Israel, opening opportunities for Jack to work in rocketry again. On June 17, 1952, a day before their planned departure, Parsons received a rush order of explosives for a film set and began working on it in his home lab. An explosion occurred, destroying the lower part of the building. Jack's right arm was blown off, his legs and left arm broken, and a hole was torn in the right side of his face. Despite these critical injuries, Parsons was found conscious by upstairs lodgers. He even tried to communicate with the arriving ambulance worker. He was rushed to the hospital, but succumbed to his injuries 37 minutes after the explosion. When his mother, Ruth, learned of his death, she immediately took a fatal overdose of barbiturates. Damn, that's heavy. The police investigators did not find sufficient evidence to investigate and ruled Parsons' death as an accident. This did not stifle the mystery behind the explosion. Some felt Jack was safety conscious and would not have made a mistake like this. Some blamed it on Parsons' drug use. Others thought it might have been revenge from an officer who Parsons testified against resulting in his conviction. This officer was released prior to the explosion. Maybe it could have been in, been the enemies of Israel knowing what a successful rocket program would do to their aims in annihilating the new Jewish states. All these years later, we still do not know whether this was an accident by Parsons or a targeted assassination. What we do know is that he was a man ahead of his time that left this world devoid of his intellect and will far too early. While we think he would be amazed in our technology and space, it almost feels like he would ask, is that all you've done so far? Would he feel that he was correct in saying that Americans were not only bad at freedom, but also religiously opposed to it? In the end, we can look back and see Jack Parsons as a maverick genius who could figure out problems through the force of his will, his hard work, and out-of-the-box thinking. A man who's enjoyed the company of many women, but still wanted more. He was willing to touch the beyond and consort with demons and maybe even the devil himself. He tried to bring about an ancient goddess that so many in the Christian world labeled as the Whore of Babylon. This man who was obviously anti-war created a weapon that could take us to space or send us to a flesh-burning hell with a bad moment by an inadequate or insecure man. Imagine Jack Parsons as a mirror and look at what you see. Might this be your true will? Might this be your very own do what thou wilt. Because as Parsons knew, when you look in the mirror, you might just be looking into the abyss. And the abyss isn't something to be looked at. You are destined to cross the abyss, whatever that abyss is to you. And the abyss looks back. It does. What do you think about all this, Scott? Well, well first of all, um, kudos on the episode. That was very well written. It was uh, You did a lot of research on that. 
for everyone listening, uh, Christian has been working on this episode since October. October. Like I went back to text to make sure it was like the first week of October. He's like, I got this. I'm working yeah. on it. Yeah. It ended up being a lot more than I expected. And I knew it was going to be a juicy, very dense story. And it could still be another, what, 12 hour read for yeah. sure. Yeah. Like there's a lot of different connections. Mm-hmm. I mean. We threw a couple of them in there. There's yeah. more. There's more, I think, on subjects like this because I'd love to get into John D, who did similar things mm-hmm. back in the days of Elizabeth the first. Yeah. So. Well, and good work. I mean, getting an interview out of it too to add in there. Like, thanks again True. to Georgina Rose. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For she doing that great. to add into the episode, I think it was a good call on adding another perspective. And yeah, and just to reiterate, after you're done here. Go listen to it. Go listen to the whole thing. You know, we've played clips in this episode, but you said that what the whole interview is roughly like 45 minutes ish. It's yes, in that time right frame. around that, that amount of time. We go over different Jack Parsons. We go over a little bit of Aleister Crowley. Yeah. L. Ron Hubbard, some Thelema, yeah. Avalon, Good and Evil. It was a fun uh, interview. I realized that being the first interview I've ever done. They're not as easy as the people on TV make them look. Oh, no. Even listening to Will's on sleep paralysis, you know, after I I was like, man, like, what's it like? And I'm like, I should have embellished a little more, you know, just trying to come up with it. But I noticed a lot of us and ahs on my part. She was great, though. She understood everything I asked her. She was able to elaborate on it. You could tell that she knows what she's talking about. And she has a very informative YouTube channel Hmm. that that you can check out. She's very active on everything social media yeah and a fresh perspective interest a lot of fun to talk to and just i could have talked for a lot longer she had so much knowledge and i could have gone down different paths to probably a little bit of everything definitely check out her stuff if you're listening georgina rose uh thank you from the gang yeah so uh so where where do you land on on parsons what what do you think heather interesting guy a dense story for sure yeah um i I left a lot out too no just even watching the documentary on him that was you know guy led a life that's Mm -hmm. for sure Um, i didn't even know like how progressive his life was i didn't even know that was a thing at the level he was at yeah um back in like the 30s apparently yeah 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 who would have thought you know I, i wouldn't have expected some of that stuff till the 60s you know basically when crowley came back into the public image yeah the 60s i would have expected a lot of this then and to find out it was going on you know or so so much earlier yeah and we didn't even touch on crowley i mean there was so much to that that story and a lot of it i don't understand and it'll be it'll be an episode all its own because crowley is another one where just every single turn you're like wow what yeah like something's always going on the dude was yeah i think he's on our to-do list that's Mm. Did you know he was connected to the British intelligence? I'm not sure. Actually, yeah. I've, I've heard like a bunch of different podcasts on him. Yeah. So I might have heard that at some point. But yeah, my my mind is uh, it's hard to keep up. Yeah. There was somewhere I was going to go with this, but I'm drawing a blank. About Crowley? About I just had another thing I was going to say, but I forgot what I was going to say. So you just have to. What happens to the best of us? So is that, I mean, do you want to talk about the different perspectives or do you want to just leave it where it is? We, we've already kind of touched base on like, I don't know, is he evil? Is he not evil? Like, and I, and I do think you could look at it from both ways. Well, I think you could see, yes, there is people that would view his actions and what he was doing as, you know, evil or satanic or anything like that. And then there's people that are like, mm, no, it's pretty standard for what they believe. And well, also when you look at not just if you take away his practices, yeah, he's anti-war. 
believes in women's rights, mm. anti-racist, yeah. you know, doesn't really like, even though he hung out with communists in the early days or, or American communists, he doesn't really yeah. agree with their particular view of the world or fascist. Mm. So he, in a lot of ways, he was just a, an enlightened man who saw the future of the world. And he was just way, way too early to understand that it's possible we're still fighting for some of the things he was pushing. Yeah. One thing I thought was interesting was what was the the bit about the lady that painted him as the angel of death? Oh, Marjorie Cameron, which was his his scarlet lady. Yeah, the scarlet mm. woman. Yeah. And she was an artist. And it's it's a cool picture. I think I put it on our our like our little early video about a freaky deaky. Yeah. We'll 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 post that because it's a, it's, sure. yeah. it's kind of creepy looking, but it's also a cool cool image, a cool little painting and when it's got layers to it too. Yeah. I mean, if you look at big picture and stuff like that, who knows? Yeah. Maybe and, isn't he the I mean, if he's the one that, you know, pretty much got the ball rolling for a lot of the stuff that we use to blow people up and you know, get I mean, obviously we get things to the moon now and all that fun stuff but couldn't that also be viewed as an angel of death of sorts you're you're bringing like the dawn of a new age an age of destruction and so technically i mean depending on how dark you want to get with it he was yeah he he was indeed the angel of death yeah and he was troubled over his military projects i bet he wanted to push rocketry Mm. but he he didn't necessarily like putting them on to weapons yeah and he knew that's what the military would do with it but he also had to make a living there's, and there's a lot of people that feel that same way that do the same stuff, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's it's a hard world to live in and it's even harder to follow your morals to a T all the time, yeah. no matter what it is. I mean, he's anti-war and doesn't believe in killing people, killing, in his view, poor people. Yeah. So I can't imagine what it must have been like when he left JPL. I know he, he and a foreman decided they were going to go into what they thought would be a more lucrative business after the war. And that is laundromats. And what a lucrative business it was. Yeah. But it, they, you know, all kinds of other things happened and they didn't go into that, but yeah, they, they basically got pushed out of the company because of his occult practices just started making people nervous. And, but is that understandable to you? Or do you think that's just people being like falling victim to whatever the, the rage was at the time or the belief was at the time i think a lot of people would still would still react the same way now hmm. i mean probably they're they're fearful of something they don't know about and maybe that's why we're talking about it i hmm. mean the guy doesn't sound that scary you know he may if you're a, a really strong conservative christian it might trouble you yeah you might think it's evil but in the end is it really we don't know and does it really matter yeah. i mean who are we to judge Again, everyone's free to believe whatever they want. Right. You know, if you want to believe he's evil and by all means, like I've gone through periods of my own where I'm like, dude's evil. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, I get to watch Star Wars and stuff like that because of he helped us get to space and yeah. keep us interested in that kind of thing. So it, as a little boy, he's what you wanted to grow up and be mm-hmm. a rocket scientist because that sounds like fun. At least when I was a little boy. Yeah. Astronaut, I've heard. Rocket scientist. No, I've I've been called a rocket scientist many times, but it was never an endearing term. <laughs> so, so we're gonna go out and have a thalamic ritual. I will not be partaking in that. <laughs> no, but no. by all means, we'll leave that up <laughs> yeah. to you. Yeah, if you want to go, you know, do that thing. I just like means. throwing it out there, like Ouija boards and 
stuff mm. like that for you guys. Yeah, but see, if anything, like Thelemites would be on my page believing in magic, right? Believing at least in the power of it. I think so. Yeah, I mean, so that's what I get so we far. That's common ground. That's the whole no? point of the rituals is to manifest something in your life. Do you think it's weird that both is that considered pagan or is that just like what, what would that be? Just a cultist? I, I think it's easier to call it a cult hmm. because but ba- basically it's just different than Christianity yeah, is what both of them kind of are. Yeah. Pagan is it'd probably be more cult because I think pagan is more ancient. Yeah. And Thelemy is a, a newer religion based on some ancient things it sounds like to me do you think it's it's weird that let's say Thelemy and just pulling one out of the bag christianity both believe in magic and believe in the power of it and the it feels like the only people because this is something that's common around the globe the only people that don't believe in magic witchcraft are people of science and like atheists and that type of stuff do you think that's weird that people who have vastly different beliefs on like the origins of the world or or who's evil, who's not, blah, blah, blah. Do you think it, it's it's just interesting that, as, that we all believe in the same crazy, paranormal, magical world, but just different takes on it? I think you could easily convince a scientist that magic exists. You just have to be able to measure it in some way. Yeah, and reproduce it. Rituals. Mm-hmm. You'd have to, and reproduce it. Very interesting. Well, this was a, it was a good episode. I feel like we, you know, went through 41 pages of a script, which, gotta be honest, was a little daunting. <laughs> I was like, how Christian was like, yeah, it's like something you said 40 pages or something like that. And I was like, whoa, that's uh and then I said, but it's large font. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The old, that was, the old man we, do, we do uh, appreciate that. Yeah. It's Not right. so much <laughs> a lot of the hard names and things to pronounce, but mm. uh, we got it. Yeah. Took a lot of reads through, but I didn't put the hard names in there. They just manifested themselves there. Classic. Yeah. After I did a ritual to bring the ma- the magic words in uh now that you've heard this you got to go check out the interview with georgina and thanks again to georgina for taking the time to talk with christian for a little bit and explain some of the stuff that surely would have been confusing to all of us otherwise um yeah that that just about wraps it up if you have any beliefs of your own on the subject or anything you want to toss in shoot us an email at the gang at the um you can hit us up on the socials at freaky deaky pod freaky deaky podcast on facebook Worth mentioning, we we have a merch store up now. Pretty much anything that's purchased will go to hooking up the studio and fixing everything up here. We're just in need of some carpet. We're in need of a table. Equipment, different things. And that's Um, about it, I think. Um, Outside of that, the we got t-shirts, hoodies, all the fun stuff. And blankets. Blankets, yes. Stickers. Yeah, for sure. And they're all in Scott's uh, amazing logos he's created up. they're all fun, bright, colorful, really show they off. Match. Yeah. <laughs> it's show off our vibe yeah. that we have. Yeah. So. People will stop you if they see you wearing one of the t-shirts or hoodies because they'll want to talk to you about what the hell is that. It's yeah. a constant yeah, um, conversation starter. I Yeah, I've been, and spoiler alert, I'm not a social person at all. When people approach me in the real world and start talking to me, I'm good at conversation, but I, I'm awkward as hell. And anytime I wear one of our shirts out, guaranteed someone's like wait what what does that say what i saw a ufo i'm like and so if if anything please buy it and spread the word because your boy is not social helps that out help him become social that's right so yeah that about wraps it up i feel like there's something else i was gonna throw in there but my mind's just not working it's not 100 percent. so uh yeah thanks for checking us out tell your friends and yeah actually more importantly also leave a review 
if you can like leave a review on itunes or apple podcasts all that stuff you know it's it's the only thing that really gets us in front of other people's eyes we can spread the word like word of mouth as much as we want but actually leaving reviews algorithms man they will be the death of anyone and so if you enjoy this podcast and you want to help us grow a little bit leave a review yeah so uh so thanks for listening again thanks to christian thanks to georgina the end one of these times i'm gonna get it now Scott, Heather, do you know of any eight-year-olds doing this? Was it just me? I know of a six-year-old doing it. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Figures I'd be the one to do that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Definitely going to have some good outtakes for this one. Yeah. After the credits, I'll throw a bunch of these just (laughs) fuck-ups. Thelemites would see the deeper meaning of Parsons' search for freedom in order to understand Thelema in a way that might take down its sinister veil, many fundamentalists of the right like to use to bring the fearful to a flock that... Okay, shit, I'm saying that one again. I don't recall summoning, summoning... I do not... I don't recall summoning this thing. The two boys shared many interests in 1928. The, um, that's I really emphasize interests. It's a little too weird. <laughs> many interests! <laughs> like, I'm super into that. The, the, that just doesn't make sense of extraterrestrials and robots. Jesus.
robots. I didn't look at this. How am I having an easier time reading this than you guys are? I was like, damn, this is written pretty well. Like, I could do this. You know, that flock in there, and it was like a frock, a frock, a lot. Like, at the end of mine, I'm like, what am I saying? From John. <laughs> you know, I've noticed every time so that first, the first sentence you ever say so is <laughs> from John. Yeah, this isn't time suck, everyone. <laughs> Just keep that in mind. To get get their plane percolate, perchlorate, 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 p chloride. <laughs> One of those is gonna be you right. You and P, man. Per perchlorate. I made your parts easy. Sure you did. No, you, you guys are just mad that I'm killing it. From some of his experience, from some of his, his, exp God. From what? <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, what the fuck is this word? I've never, you probably heard it, but never seen it spelled yeah. out. Am I saying Asians? <laughs> this is the hardest episode ever. The end. Goodbye. No.